0: Welcome to Slide, the Avalanche Podcast. Back for Season 2, I am Doug Krause, coming to you from a closet in Wellington, New Zealand, because it's acoustically damp and they have good micro-brews. We're going to start off this season with a bit of a progression on ways we think about avalanche problems, or should be thinking about avalanche problems. That's the meat of the show. I've got a little story time frosting on the tail end, and we're starting with some state of the pack and a whiff of gear. Moving. DPS is coming out with a new wax-like but not wax product they call Phantom Glide. It's a product you apply to your ski bases just one time, and in theory, you may never need to wax again very handy for those of us that barely wax in the first place after a very successful kickstarter campaign dps is gearing up for a full retail launch in december you can find more information on their website at dpsskis.com in the world of things you put on your feet it, eh, i don't really feel like talking about gear anymore moving state of the pack Quite a few of the avalanche centers are not up and running yet, and the ski areas that are open are mostly confined to fake snow. All of which makes it a little difficult to figure out what is going on in the world. But that shouldn't hold us back. Never has before. Colorado's Central Mountains, Southern Montana, Jackson, and the Columbia Mountains have all had a couple decent shots of snow, and the go-getters are out there go-getting. Fly like a butterfly and turn like a butterfly. Nervous butterfly. The first avalanche fatalities of the North American season came early this year. I can't do the sad music anymore, it breaks me up. Be careful out there. It's avalanche season, and it's the part of avalanche season that grinds you into rocks when something goes wrong. Not much snow in Cali so far but the Pacific Northwest and parts of the coast mountains have probably been doing better than most. Farmer Jed says the pigs are in the barn and the skiing is pretty good up at Hatcher Pass and AK, getting dark though, and it just got winded. Japan's secret spot, AKA not Hokkaido, not Hakuba is starting to fire up and they've gotten their first solid snows of the season above 2000 meters in Europe. Gotten is a word in Vermont. Believe it or not, there is still plenty of skiing in New Zealand, but I advise against visiting New England in November. It is typically cold, damp, and gray, like a pair of used socks left in the car overnight. That's what I got. On with the show. Moving. Words matter. Words matter in part because they frame the way we think. A thinking lesson, therefore, must include a language lesson. But danger lesson is a much catchier title than language lesson. Today, we review how to speak and think about avalanche danger and avalanche problems. Avalanche danger and avalanche hazard are the same thing. I like using danger. It's got more kick to it. But in practice, the terms are interchangeable. From the 2012 Conceptual Model for Avalanche Hazard, our load star for this piece, avalanche danger is the potential for an avalanche to cause damage to something of value, like me, like you. The danger is a function of likelihood and size. What are the odds And how big could it be? When avalanches that could destroy a large swath of forest are very likely, we go bowling. That's four words that matter. Hazard, danger, likelihood, and size. Despite what you may have heard, size matters. You may also have heard that character matters. I swear I'm still on target. Avalanche character describes a set of characteristics that describe the kind of avalanche we may encounter. Storm slabs, wind slabs, persistent slabs, deep persistent slabs, dry loose, wet loose, wet slab, and cornice. You gotta know this list. I'll repeat it. Storm slab, wind slab, persistent slab, Deep, persistent slab. Dry loose, wet loose. Now I got a cut loose, foot loose. Kick off the Sunday shoes. Everybody cut. Everybody cut. Wet slab and cornice. You don't have to memorize the list right now. I'll put a link in the show notes. And I know I left out glide. Don't interrupt. Avalanche character helps us conceptualize and describe the nature of the avalanche problem we are dealing with. In fact, character got a bit of a promotion in the new version of the conceptual model and morphed into avalanche problem type. Each type is associated with general guidelines on its salient characteristics. Weak layer, slab properties, persistence, thickness, propagation potential, size potential, and so much more, a problem-type designation is packed with information. If I'm wondering about persistent slab problems, I know that persistent slab is not just a catchy title. It's a vessel for a packet of information. If I suspect a storm slab problem, I know that I should look for the weakness in or just below the most recent storm snow, That it is likely to stabilize within a couple days at most but until then it might propagate to include the entire avalanche path there's even risk management information included in the definition what a bargain the avalanche problem types and the information they contain need to be part of your vocabulary good morning this is doug in the fargo avalanche information center fike for short Today, storm slabs are likely, up to D2 in size, on north through east-facing aspects above 12,000 feet. That is a full avalanche problem statement. It includes information on problem type, likelihood, location, and size. Storm slab is the problem type. We've got aspect and elevation range for our location. The likelihood is likely and the size is up to D2. Avalanche problems and hazard are the evolution of language that professionals use to communicate with each other and the public. The danger is a function of likelihood and size. An avalanche problem adds specific location and problem type information. If you regularly consume avalanche bulletins, you are probably already familiar with this. At least a little bit. Most of the North American centers, Japan and New Zealand, have adopted the avalanche problem as a public safety messaging tool. And the five-point danger scale is standard across the 16 nations that participate in the European Avalanche Warning Services Working Group, which sadly does not lend itself to a catchy acronym. But these are more than public safety messaging tools. These are frameworks for language and thought, that we can use to guide our own assessment these are the onions that we need to peel in order to ruminate more profoundly on our own personal avalanche problems you might want to grab a fresca and some hohos for this next bit because i'm gonna keep unpacking i'll give you a minute clear let's all go to the lobby Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Moving! Dig into an avalanche problem description from your local ache, and you'll likely find the location of avalanche problems is described by aspect and elevation, but also by spatial distribution, specifically, the density of spatial distribution three more terms for you, isolated, specific, and widespread. Those three terms make up the distribution scale. Isolated means an instability is only found in a few locations, and evidence is hard to find. At the other end, widespread means an instability will be found in many locations, and evidence of it should be all up in your face. Add those words to your lexicon, your mental wordy meaning list. If I tell you a wind slab problem will be found in specific areas, that means that it only exists in parts of the terrain. It is not widespread. The problem is confined to specific areas with common characteristics. For instance, those immediately leeward of ridgelines and terrain features, or as they say on the sea, De Do you know what a pirate's favorite letter is? Aye, you may be thinking R, but tis the C. So, all right, so far so good. Avalanche problem type and location. Isolated persistent slabs on northerly aspects above 3,000 meters. What about likelihood? What are the odds that something is going to go down, so to speak? Isn't that really where the sausage gets made? Likelihood is a function of spatial distribution, which we just covered, and sensitivity to triggers. Distribution combined with sensitivity describes likelihood. To quote the conceptual model again, likelihood of triggering is a judgmental combining of both sensitivity to triggers and spatial Distribution. But the new model comes with a handy dandy little matrix to help the addled, novitiate, or chronically inconsistent combine the four levels of likelihood with the three levels of spatial distribution into one of the five levels of likelihood. This does actually have distinct advantages for those who arise and get to work a quatro, ente meridium. Likelihood of triggering runs from unlikely to possible, to likely, to very likely, all the way up to almost certain. If those terms don't inspire you, I'm with you. What exactly is the difference between likely and very likely? Well, the differences are based on a synthesis of elevation, aspect, and spatial distribution with the sensitivity scale of unreactive, stubborn, reactive, and touchy. What do you think of my word soup? See? Language lessons. These are words of estimative probability. Thank you, Sherman Kent. If you'll allow me to get technical for a moment, probability technically, is a measure. It is a calculation that describes the expected frequency of an event. On the other hand, an estimation, by definition, is not a measure, right? So, estimative probability is an oxy-friggin-moron. Whiskey, tango, foxtrot, over- The very nature of the scales emphasizes uncertainty. The likelihood is not 73. It is one of five options, perhaps possible, which leaves a darn fine side of wiggle room and promotes job security for avalanche forecasters. Avalanche problems, and maybe most specifically the sensitivity to triggers, are qualitative judgments not measurements. Yet our propensity for rating things on a scale lends them a quantitative guise. You can't make a complex decision based on a danger rating of four. You can start, but we gotta unpack that onion. Peel that suitcase. If I say, triggering a persistent slab is likely, you should say, why, Doug? why i'll let you ruminate on that for a minute clear moving okay avalanche problem type and location today we expect to find loose dry avalanches on north aspects above 2000 meters likelihood of triggering I'm forecasting widespread distribution and touchy sensitivity. That equates to a blissfully unambiguous likelihood of almost certain. Destructive size is the final ingredient in our problem description. Most places in the world measure this using the D scale. If you're not familiar with the D scale, you should probably stop listening to podcasts and go take a level one avalanche class. I'm not going to help you much. The d-scale categorizes avalanche size relative to dug, or to destructive potential, whichever you prefer. Returning to our example, I'm forecasting loose dry avalanches are almost certain on north aspects above 2,000 meters, and I expect them to be up to size d2. That's a full avalanche problem statement. So what do we do with it? Peel there. We peel the suitcase. There are three critical components still missing from our problem suitcase, though evidence, uncertainty, and context. In the original conceptual model, the balance between evidence and uncertainty is reduced and described using a confidence rating of good, fair, or poor. If I may, I shall go rogue for a moment and say, don't do it. If ever there were categories that begged for detail, not reduction, they are evidence and uncertainty. Indeed, the old school model lists 41 different types of evidence and data that contribute to our assessment of avalanche hazard At the very least, you should be describing the evidence that supports your assessment separately from the uncertainty that may undermine it. In their defense, most avalanche centers that rate confidence describe the rating criteria and the evidence on which it is based, but it's hidden behind that C word. We slip into confidence all too easily without a push in that direction. A focus on the handle of evidence versus the void of uncertainty is more than warranted. Keep those words front and center in your decision-making process. Evidence and uncertainty. Context is the spatial and temporal scale of your forecast combined with the problem you are facing, what you want to do. An avalanche center will typically forecast for a, a local range or zone for a period of 36 hours or so with an intended audience of primarily skiers, snowmobilers, and maybe some climbers. That's their context. At the top of a line, inevitably, the spatial and temporal context boils down to right here, right now. Your context is not the same as your avalanche centers. You are ready to drop in. Your evidence-uncertainty balance better be more detailed than theirs. Your problem assessment needs to have a finer grain. If your rated likelihood of a persistence lab is no more detailed than possible, you can't stick that in your pipe and smoke it. If you are not peeling your own onion, you may be about to become an avalanche problem. What's my evidence-uncertainty balance regarding expected avalanche problem type, right here, right now? What flavor avalanche can I expect and why? Is my location consistent with where I might find that flavor? What evidence do I have to support an estimate of sensitivity to triggering in this giant snowfield that I am dying to center punch? if the uncertainty is high, yet I'm still getting ready to drop in, that is called guessing. Not a tactic that lends itself to repeatability. Maybe the recipe for booyah is a little heavy on the chutzpah and light on evidence. We need to contextualize our personal avalanche problems and go, no-go decisions right here, right now, with evidence and uncertainty. We have the language for that. We have the tools. They're all laid out in the conceptual model of avalanche hazard. Frequently, we even have all the information we need. But do we have the grit, the resolve to faithfully execute this danger and problem assessment every day, every run, on our own dime, Too often, the answer is no. We just take a bite and only then realize that an onion is best consumed in small slices, one at a time, without liver. That's the danger lesson. Clear! Moving. So me and Rufus are going skiing. Our local ache is telling us that their primary concern is persistent slab. They consider it possible, possible, mainly on Northwest through Northeast aspects between five and 6,000 cubits. Weigh the size potential up to D3. Eek. Eek. Not a Not a perfect example of a low probability, high consequence scenario but it's a pretty good one. Large relative to Doug and close enough to put me on edge and piss me off that we're the only ones in the world that still use qubits. If you're curious, a qubit is 1.5 feet. See what I did there? Right, moving on. The nice thing about Persistence Lab is I know that it is identified with a specific weak layer. In this case, A surface whore layer that we've been tracking should be buried about a cubit down. I also know that failures in persistent weak layers, like surface whore, can propagate far and wide and today produce avalanches big enough to bury and destroy a car, D3. Again, this does not please me. Nor does a likelihood rating of possible. I hate possible. Digging deeper so to speak, I see that the possible rating is based on isolated distribution combined with a reactive sensitivity rating, one out of three on the distribution scale and three out of four on the sensitivity scale. Loosely translated, we may have trouble finding the problem, but if we do, the dog will bite. Rufus and I have a history of getting bit because we like to ski in places where the slabs get a bit peckish and we carry lots of bacon. But we've got a plan to improve our odds by gum. We've identified the primary uncertainties we'll face. Is there touchy persistent slab exactly where we want to ski? And if it avalanches, how close to D3 will it rip? Even a little close is too close so we identify a piece of terrain that we don't expect is capable of producing anything more than a D2, given the current depth of the snowpack. We also suspect the surface hoar may not exist there. If it did, the shot is subject to periodic cornice fall, so perhaps the path is already run and flushed. Seems like a good plan. We depart and attempt to gather evidence to reduce our uncertainty, Cresting 5,000 cubits, we begin to approach our run and try to gather evidence. We've not observed any cracking or collapsing. A smattering of hand pits doesn't ring any alarm bells. There's a small meadow near the start zone of our path where we pause for reassessment and an extended column test. The layer is prominent in our pit wall, ECTP-22 resistant planar. Down about a qubit and a half. You know what that is? The ECT bit. If not, again, take an avalanche class. We scratch our heads, I take a pull of water, and Rufus farts. It was his turn. We continue up. Sure enough, the snowpack is not deep enough in our line to produce a D3. Exposed terrain features break up the path into several sections. We can see what might be a bit of buried debris at the bottom. It's a beautiful day, and there's about a cubit of light and dry-looking pow right in front of our ski tips. We found the persistent instability, more or less, right here, right now. Our pit did not indicate touchy conditions. But our pit was not in the avalanche start zone. Maybe it already ran. That's kind of hard to tell. D2 is better than D3, but it's still enough to bury, injure, or kill a person. How do you think we feel about our evidence and uncertainty? Should we ski it? What would you do? Clear! that's it that's all that's our show i hope you enjoyed it i know it was a lot to digest and i do swear i'm trying to make this stuff easier to digest you can find a link to the conceptual model of avalanche hazard and a guide to avalanche problem types in the show notes all feedback is always welcome and encouraged if you did not enjoy slide the avalanche podcast may i suggest a nice belgian waffle If you'd like to see Slide continue, I encourage you to subscribe via iTunes or Android. You can support Slide by the links on our page at avalanchepodcast.com. This year, those who contribute $5 a month via Patreon will receive a transcript of each show. We're coming up on 60,000 listens, and I have about 10 Patreon supporters, which is way better than five. Thanks to Trevor, Colin, James, Tyler, Charlie, Sarah, Jake, Alex, Chris, Glenn, and Tracy. I will get transcripts out to the continuing (laughs) patrons Patrons, muy pronto. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod and Incompetech. Additional sponsors include the Silverton Avalanche School and DPS Skis. In the next episode, we're going to add some spicy peppers to our onion and plunge into the topic of risk. To everyone out there that's provided encouragement and feedback, pray for snow. Thank you.